It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service for Friday, June 19, 2020. On today's episode, music librarian Farah Muhammad talks about one of jazz's greatest artists, Ella Fitzgerald. And so today, we celebrate her life and her indescribable talent. On Book Talking, librarians Lisa Milder and Mairead Stevenson talk about four books, Outlander, The Handmaid's Tale, The Martian, and The Hunger Games. Historically, science fiction writing has provided very fertile ground for movies and television, as the four titles we are discussing today have proven. TV and movie librarian Stephen Tomlinson is back, and he has some more recommendations for your weekend and the week ahead, including Hollywood movies Knives Out, Ford vs. Ferrari, the new HBO miniseries The Plot Against America, and a new documentary called The Windermere Children. This Monday, June 22nd, on TCM, Turner Classic Movies, are six in a row of the most notable movies from writer-director Billy Wilder one of the most brilliant and versatile filmmakers of the Hollywood Golden Age. On this date in history, June 19, 1846, it was the first officially recognized baseball game played in Hoboken, New Jersey. On June 19, 1865, Union General Gordon Granger traveled to Texas, to Galveston, and he declared that all slaves are free. He shared with the population there the Emancipation Proclamation which of course Lincoln had signed in 1862. Now the declaration had been made in the middle of the war and it wasn't until the final victory of the Union government in mid-1865 that many slaves in the former Confederate states were granted their final freedom. And one of the remotest slave states was Texas. Now very few battles of the war took place in Texas, but after the end of the war, federal troops arrived on June 19, and that's when Major General Gordon Granger arrived on Galveston Island and issued his general order, which stated in part, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. Today, June 19 is celebrated in 47 of the 50 US states as Juneteenth, the day when slavery in America ended. And there is, of course, a campaign to make it a national federal holiday. That was This Day in History. Here is Farah Muhammad talking about the life and times of Ella Fitzgerald. Well, hello there, and welcome to another musical moment. My name is Farah Muhammad, and today, we will be enlightened, enlivened, and entertained with the sweet sounds of Miss Ella Jane Fitzgerald. June 15, 1996, marked the 24th anniversary of her death. She was 78 years old when she died, and so today we celebrate her life and her indescribable talent. Otherwise known as Lady Ella, or the First Lady of Song, and even the queen of jazz. Ella Fitzgerald's vocal abilities and sheer talent for beautiful singing are in a class utterly by itself. Spanning over a three octave range, her intonation is flawless, always singing in tune and in time. And with her impeccable phrasing and breath control, she never sounded strained or harsh. Her diction was so clear. 
One moment, she could sing the most heartbreaking ballad with an effortless sweetness, then scat with such ferocity to rival any brass section. It's hard to believe that she was an untrained singer, yet she had the refined sophistication of a world-class opera singer. Her tone was pure and clear, nuanced and flexible. She sang without any kind of affectation or drama. Of the songs written with his brother George, Ira Gershwin once said, I didn't realize our songs sounded so good until Ella sang them. Ella Jane Fitzgerald was born on April 25, 1917, in Newport News, Virginia. She was the daughter of William Fitzgerald and Temperance Henry. Her parents were unmarried and split up when Ella was about two years old. Her life was not an easy one. In 1932, when Ella was just 15, disaster struck and her world came crashing down all around her. Her mother died from injuries sustained in a car accident. Predictably, Ella's life fell apart. She stopped attending school and worked for a time as a lookout for a bordello and ran numbers for the local mafia. She was arrested, then shipped off to New York Training School for Girls. In November of 1934, the 17-year-old Ella participated in one of the first amateur nights held at the Apollo Theater. Although she wanted to dance, at the last minute, she decided to sing a few songs instead. Good thing she did. She won first prize. This brought her to the attention of Chick Webb. Chick Webb's band played at the Savoy Ballroom, and it was from that very famous venue that Ella's fame grew. In 1938, she was catapulted into the national spotlight when a song that she co-authored based on a nursery rhyme, hit the top of the charts and became one of the best-selling records of the decade. Oh dear, I 
Ella Fitzgerald was perhaps the best interpreters of the great American songbook, that canon of American popular music written between the 1910s and the 1950s. They included songs by such great composers like Cole Porter, Rogers and Hart, Duke Ellington, Irving Berlin, George and Ira Gershwin, Harold Arlen, Jerome Kern, and Johnny Mercer. You name it, she sang it all. Here's a beloved favorite by Cold Porter called Begin the Begin. When they begin the beginning, it brings back the sound of music so tender. It brings back a night of tropical splendor. It brings back a memory evergreen. I'm with you once more under the stars. And down by the shore, an orchestra's playing. Then the palms seem to be swaying when they begin.
suddenly know what heaven we're in when they begin the beginning when they begin the One of the greatest musical marriages in the history of jazz was that of Ella and Louis Armstrong. They recorded three albums together on the Verve label, each a musical giant in their own right. When they got together, it was heaven. Here's a mellow number, Dream a Little Dream of Me, a 1931 song with music by Fabian Andre and Wilbur Schwant and lyrics by Gus Kahn. Just listen to this wonderfully relaxed duet, the way in which they both dovetail from one another, most definitely a beautiful singing partnership. Shining bright above you Night breezes seem to whisper I love you Birds singing in the sycamore tree Dream a little dream of me Say nighty night and kiss me just hold me tight and tell me you'll miss me while I'm alone and blue as can be. Dream a little dream of me. Stars fading, but I linger on this. Oh, how you linger still craving your kiss how you crave my kiss now i'm longing to linger till dawn dear just saying this give me a little kiss sweet dreams till sunbeams find you sweet dreams that leave all worry behind you but in your dreams whatever they be dream a little dream of me but I linger on dear still craving your kiss yeah, I'm longing to linger till dawn, dear. Just saying this. Sweet dreams, dreaming. Till something's fine, you keep dreaming. Gotta keep dreaming. Whatever they be, you've got to make me a prize. 
Sure, she can belt out languid torch songs or sentimental dreamy songs, but what about those fiery numbers showcasing her scatting skills? No one does it better than Ella. And it's not easy as it sounds to be able to improvise in tempo, on time, using nonsensical syllables at breakneck speed, all the while trying to make it sound musically interesting and off the cuff. Here, Ella is on fire. Hurrying by when you're in love, my they fly blue 
It goes without saying, I would be terribly remiss if I didn't include this iconic piece. Here she is, singing Gershwin's timeless classic, Summertime. Summertime And the living
think I'll go down. Let's let's go down and dig the real cool sounds at Mr. Kelly's. You come in, Mr. Kelly's, and you taste a while. Yes, Daddy, you drink a while, and you drink. What do you get? The check. You don't mind it 'cause it's summertime. Living's easy. <laughs> What do you care? Your daddy's rich. You got a good-looking mother. Imagine everybody with a good-looking mother and a rich daddy. <laughs> summertime. That's what the song says. Living's easy. Goodman and Bing Crosby named Ella as their favorite singer. As Crosby once said, "Man, woman, or child, Ella is the greatest." Ella, who said of herself all those years ago when she took part in that amateur night at the Apollo Theater, "I know I'm no glamour girl, and it's not easy for me to get up in front of a crowd of people. It used to bother me a lot, but now I've got it figured out." That God gave me this talent to use, so I just stand up there and sing. And boy, did she ever! I hope that you've enjoyed today's musical moment, and I hope that you'll be able to hear some more beautiful songs from this great artist. And what better time to do so than now? Why? 'Cause it's summertime, and the living is easy. Happy listenings. Bye for now. Any discussion about books that have been made into film? My name is Lisa Milner. My colleague Mairead Stevens and I will be discussing the genre known as science fiction. The books we will be discussing today are Outlander by Diana Gabaldon, The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, The Martian by Andy Weir, and The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. Historically, science fiction writing has provided very fertile ground for movies and television. As the four titles we are discussing today have proven, what is science fiction? You may ask. Science fiction, sometimes shortened to sci-fi or SF, is a genre of speculative fiction that typically deals with imaginative and futuristic concepts such as advanced science and technology, space exploration, time travel, parallel universes, and extraterrestrial life. It has been called the literature of ideas and often explores the potential consequences of science, scientific, social, and technological innovations. So let's get started with our first book, Outlander by Diana Gabaldon, was published in 1991. This is the first in a series of novels. She's almost finished writing the ninth novel in the series, which will be titled "Go Tell the Bees That I Am Gone." According to her website, however, there is no publication date available yet. Outlander starts out in 1946, just after World War II. A young English woman named Claire Beauchamp Randall goes to the Scottish Highlands with her husband Frank. During the war, Claire was a combat nurse, and Frank was in the army. Been separated for the last six years. This trip to Scotland is a second honeymoon, and they are getting reacquainted with each other and thinking of starting a family. 
One day, Claire goes out walking by herself and comes across a circle of standing stones. She walks through a cleft stone in the circle. She hears a buzzing sound, and then she disappears. She finds herself in 1743, where the first person she meets is a gentleman in an 18th century army officer's uniform. This gentleman, Jack Randall, looks like her husband, Frank, and proves to be Frank's six times great-grandfather. Unfortunately, he also proves to be incredibly cruel. While trying to escape from him, Claire falls into the hands of a gang of Highland Scots. They are also trying to get away from Black Jack Randall, but for other reasons. In order to avoid being handed over to Captain Randall, Claire is obliged to marry one of the young clansmen. She finds herself trying to escape from Castle Lioch and her Scottish captors, trying to get back to her husband Frank, trying to avoid being captured by Captain Randall and falling in love with Jamie Fraser, the young man she's been forced to marry. An interesting fact is, in the late 1980s, when Diana Gabaldon started writing Outlander, she decided to write a novel for practice on her blog. She wanted to learn what it took to write a novel, and she wanted to decide whether she really wanted to be a writer as her background is in science. As she shared her writing on the blog, the people who were reading her work urged her to get it published, and thankfully she did. That's very interesting and very similar to the path of the book, The Martian by Andy Weir took. Andy Weir had written a first book, which had not been accepted by any publisher, and he decided to write an online story. And he actually had it up on his website free of charge. This was read and using comments from readers, scientists, engineers, and assorted geeks, Andy improved the original. Due to requests for a more easily downloadable format, he then published it on Amazon for the minimum price allowed. Strong sales encouraged Crown to publish it. Sale of the book and the film rights occurred in short order. The Martian, published in 2011 and the hardcover in 2014, is the story of astronaut Mark Watney, who through a series of unfortunate events is left stranded alone on Mars. Using his scientific knowledge and skills, he must overcome a multitude of obstacles threatening his survival, all the while trying to keep calm and sane in the face of overwhelming odds. This book is a type of science fiction called hard science science fiction. Not because it's difficult to understand, but because all the activities and actions are rooted in scientific theory or practice and conform to the laws of nature, even if all the technology may not exist in the present. In fact, this title would be one of my top pandemic title picks, as it is about a man surviving for a long period in isolation. It is adventure, triumph over adversity, very humorous, and a really engrossing read and guaranteed to take you to another world. In an interview published in the February 2018 issue of Reason, Andy Weir is saying he likes so-called hard science sci-fi and quoting him, as for the other sci-fi that exists these days, I feel it's been hijacked by these dystopian misery worlds where only teenagers can save us from the government. Which brings me to another side of science fiction uh, with The Hunger Games, which is indeed dystopian fiction. So what is dystopian? One definition is relating to or denoting an imagined state or society where there is great suffering or injustice. The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins is just that. This young adult novel published in 2008 is the first in a trilogy. Set in a not too distant future, the United States has collapsed due to environmental and social calamities and has been replaced by a country known as Panem. Panem is divided into 12 districts plus the capital. The poor, subjugated districts support the lavish and easy existence of the capital. Every year, two young people are selected from each of these districts by lottery in a ceremony known as the reaping. 
those selected go to the capital to, to participate in a televised spectacle known as the Hunger Games. The competitors are placed into a controlled but natural environment where in order to survive, they must find a way to kill all their fellow competitors. When younger sister Prim is chosen, our heroine Katniss Everdeen volunteers to go in her place. She and fellow District 12 participant PETA must now put whatever survival skills they have to good use. This book goes on to pull you into Katniss's struggles and emotions with a dramatic style. She is faced with a kill or be killed dilemma, yet manages to hold on to her humanity, even when faced with obscene choices. As I've mentioned, this was the first in a trilogy, so I'd not be giving away anything by saying that the way Katniss ultimately triumphs does not endear her to the powers that be and sets us up for future conflicts. 23 years before The Hunger Games, The Handmaid's Tale, also a dystopian novel by our very own Canadian author, Margaret Atwood, was published in 1985. The novel takes place in a near future world, polluted by toxic chemicals and nuclear radiation. Few women can bear children and the birth rate has dropped alarmingly. The president of the United States has been assassinated in a fundamentalist coup. The new regime has reshaped the US into a puritanical totalitarian theocracy known as the Republic of Gilead. In this highly misogynistic and repressive nation, women who remain fertile are forced to become handmaids. They are the official breeders for society. The main narrative consists of a transcription of tapes made by a handmaid named Offred. She has recorded her experiences growing up in the old society, her process of indoctrination into the new one, and her experience as the handmaid of one of its commanders. The name she has given indicates that she only exists to serve the commander. His name is Fred. She is of Fred. Offred tells her story in the first person, describing the harrowing and repressive daily life of a handmaid. Her account is interspersed with flashbacks from her pre-Gilead existence. During the most fertile point of Offred's menstrual cycle, she is forced to lie between the commander's le wife's legs while the commander has sex with her. When Offred is unable to become pregnant, the commander's wife, Serena Joy, suggests that Offred secretly sleep with her gardener and chauffeur Nick. She hopes to cloak Nick's child as the commander's. Offred and Nick begin a highly illegal affair, swamped in shadowy motives. The danger of this situation pushes, pushes Offred to escape the commander's household. Whether she is fleeing towards her freedom or her death is unclear. The Handmaid's Tale has had a resurgence in popularity since the TV show starring Elizabeth Moss, which premiered in April 2017. I remember an earlier movie version from 1990 starring Natasha Richardson, Robert Duvall, and Faye Dunaway. How does the book compare to this newer TV show? I actually watched the show first, which is unusual for me. I usually prefer to read the book first, but I saw the trailers for the show and I was drawn, of course, to the stunning visuals. But more importantly, it seemed to be a cautionary tale of the society that we live in and what the future could possibly hold if we don't pay attention to social, political, and environmental issues facing us. This was especially true following the 2016 ele election of Donald Trump. It's 30 plus years after the book was published, and we are still discussing women's roles in society and the impact we are having on the planet. The main differences between the book and the show is the fact that the TV series shows a racially integrated society. But in the book, people of color, who were called the children of Ham, were mentioned in only a few sentences. And this was to alert readers that they were segregated into a colony located in the Midwest. There was much discussion between Margaret Atwood and producers about whether they would keep the storyline or change it in the TV series. 
In the end, they decided that excluding people of color would be detrimental to the message of the show. Another difference is, in the book, readers never learn what Alfred's pre-Gilead name is. A close look showed the name June in one scene in the book and attached it to the protagonist. So the show's creator decided to use this as her name from her past life. Much in the same way you were attracted by the show first, I was drawn to check out The Hunger Games due to the huge cultural explosion that, that accompanied the books and later movies. Were you Team Peta or Team Gale? If you didn't know what that meant and have an opinion, then you were not in the mainstream. I think I'm more Team Gale, by the way. This was the next big thing after Harry Potter and the Twilight Book Sensations. The movies follow the books closely and it was a breakout role for Jennifer Lawrence. The movies are full of great special effects and that high visibility attracted such stars as Donald Sutherland, Stanley Tucci and Lenny Kravitz to the project. I've heard you say that Outlander is one of your favorite books. How do you feel about the TV series? Well, first I'd like to say that I am definitely not Team Gale. I am definitely Team Peta in The Hunger Games, but yes, um, Outlander is definitely one of my favorites and I tend to reread it whenever I'm in a slump and looking for something good to read. When I heard that they would be making a TV show, I immediately felt that there was no way they could do justice to the book. I'm happy to say that they proved me wrong and I enjoy the series as much as I enjoy the books. Gabaldon does all of the research for her books and her attention to historical detail is apparent and she's heavily involved in the TV show and this attention to detail carries over to the show. I think the show was very well cast, especially Sam Hewen and Katrina Balt, who played Jamie and Claire. Initially, Diana Gabaldon said she couldn't see Sam Hewen as Jamie. She originally wanted someone like Liam Neeson or Sean Connery. Uh, no, but she said once she saw Sam's audition, she changed her mind. Katrina Balt wasn't even cast in the role of Claire until one week before filming started. Once again, Balt doesn't look the way Claire is described in the book. But Diana Gobledon has said that actors embody the character they play, and it doesn't matter what they look like. There have been other changes, such as the storyline of Jamie's godfather, Murtaugh, but I don't feel that they distract from my enjoyment of the show. Well, I also started reading this series of books, and I have to say, while I enjoyed them, I was getting a little fed up by the fourth book saying, let's finish this already. The TV show moves on a little more quickly, and I have enjoyed them quite a bit. One thing I think we can agree on is that The Martian works both as a book and as a movie. So often a movie is disappointing after you've read the book, but not in this case. This movie is visually stunning and believable. Matt Damon plays Mark Watney in the movie, and I think he's incredible in the role. I might not have imagined him as Mark, but I find it works. Yes, I agree. I think both the book and the movie worked very well. And I often found myself laughing out loud at both. I found the book funnier, but there are passages that aren't recreated on film exactly as they appear in the book, but that's natural, given the nature of film versus the written word. We've covered several different styles of science fiction and could mention many more. I think these titles are all worth reading and watching. I hope a small glimpse into the world of sci-fi will encourage everyone to try it. On behalf of Lisa and myself, we'd like to thank you for listening today. Hello everyone, welcome to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. That's me, and for the next 20 minutes or so, I'll be providing recommendations for some movies to watch and where to watch them. The Five Bloods, a brand new movie on Netflix this week from director Spike Lee, the filmmaker behind, most recently, Black Klansman. He returns to the screen with this highly ambitious, very timely, and certainly politically charged drama. 
about four African-American war veterans who go back to Vietnam to find and bring home the remains of their fallen squad leader, along with the buried gold that they had hidden there over 45 years ago. Set mostly against the westernized, highly capitalistic Vietnam of today, Lee's film explores a multitude of provocative issues and themes, not all of which are related to anti-Black racism. But I think that structure will likely present for many an unwelcome distraction from the basic story at hand, which is one primarily of comradeship, sacrifice, and trauma among the four principal characters. Certainly, a definite strength of this film is its ensemble cast, with Spike Lee regular Delroy Lindo in particular providing a stellar performance as the post-traumatic stress disorder-stricken veteran for whom the trauma of his wartime experience has never really gone away. With some unnerving paranoia and a highly strong personality, Lindo often dominates the screen, providing the film with some of its most powerful moments. Clark Peters, Norm Lewis, and Isaiah Whitlock Jr. co-star as his fellow veterans, each compelling in their own way, and each burdened with the physical and mental scars of war, not to mention the lifetime experience of casual racism in their own country. But more problematic to the success of this film is that as the story transitions back and forth between a contemporary setting and flashback sequences, director Lee has chosen to let his principal actors, men who are well into their 60s, play their younger selves without any form of special effects de-aging. And that is definitely a less ambiguous distraction than any of its extraneous social commentary along the way. That aspect just doesn't work at all. But on the whole, The Five Bloods, spelled D-A space, the number five, space, Bloods, B-L-O-O-D-S, is a sometimes frustrating, if more often than not, compelling film in many regards. As there's no denying in its topicality Spike Lee's artful sense of anger and commitment to social justice, much the same as he demonstrated decades ago in such films as Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X. But with this new film, I think, the punch is softened somewhat by an overly ambitious agenda with some messy shifts in tone that I can't help but feel would have worked better as a straightforward contemporary story concentrated only on these four characters. And had it been cut of some unnecessary elements and reduced in length, I think this film, at two and a half hours long, might have been one of the year's best so far. But given the passion and artistry on display here, it's still, you know, despite my slight ambivalence, more than worth a look. That's De Five Bloods, now streaming this week on Netflix. Although there was no traditional ceremony, last month, the Italian film industry presented its version of the Oscars, the Donatellos, with winners appearing via video link. The big winner on the night was Marco Bellocchio's part biopic, part courtroom mafia drama, Il Traditore, a.k.a. The Traitor, and now available on the library's Hoopla digital streaming service, as well as on iTunes. Among its many awards that night, The Traitor won for Best Film, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Actor for Pier Francesco Flavino 
as the real-life Tomasa Buscetta, a high-profile mafia boss and informant, whose testimony literally helped put hundreds of mafiosa in prison throughout the 1980s and 1990s, during a time of great political turmoil and corruption in Italy as a whole. Now, arguably his country's greatest living filmmaker, Marco Bellocchio, at age 80 and with a career dating back to the early 1960s, has decided to do something with his film that is relatively rare in movies, and that is not to glorify the mafia in any way. Certainly not as we see in most American films and TV accounts of it. In The Traitor, there is nothing romantic or charismatic about them. They are not men of honor imbibed with a kind of old world glamour that we see, you know, in The Godfather. Um, they're, they're nothing more than cruel, ignorant thugs in the memorable words of one character. At the opening of the film in the early 1980s, the warring Sicilian factions have decided to get together and make peace with one another. And the real-life Bouchetta knew that peace was not going to last. So with his wife and kids, he fled Palermo for Brazil. But after his clan is decimated in a power struggle over the incredibly lucrative international drug trade, he is ultimately extradited back to Italy, where under the tutelage of Judge Giovanni Falcone, another real-life figure and incredibly important in uh, recent uh, Italian history, very heroic, he agrees, that is, Buscetta agrees to become an informant against his former associates. But what clearly motivates him is, I think, the traitor's primary thematic focus. And that's not only the guilt he carries for what his life in the Mafia has cost his family, including the deaths of his sons, but also the burden placed upon his smaller children and steadfast, loyal wife. But he doesn't, com doesn't cooperate with the authorities solely out of remorse or civic responsibility. No, not at all. I, he clearly also wants revenge and feels that turning informant is the best way to accomplish that. And then once deciding to cooperate with Judge Falcone, he claims to be upholding the values of what he calls the old Casa Nostra, an honorable brotherhood, he insists, that was less ruthless, he claims, and more principled, he believes, or says, than the current version. But of course, as viewers, we can't help but see in all this his own hypocrisy and his own opportunism. In The Traitor, Bellocchio's 20-year chronicle of Bouchetta's life is highlighted by a masterful recreation of the infamous real-life mass trials of many mob bosses who appear together in cages at the back of the court behind ranks of robed lawyers. It's, it's a very memorable image where they continually insult and dispute Bouchetta as he addresses their accusations from in front of the judges while making devastating accusations of his own. So detailed and so richly textured is this film that on occasion some viewers, even me, who has some familiarity with um, contemporary Italian history, if not all the intricacies of its culture, may have a little difficulty understanding everything that is going on.
Yet that hardly matters as Bellocchio makes it all absolutely captivating. And despite its sometimes slow pace at two and a half hours as well, this true life gangster epic with its atypical concentration on the weight of guilt and its consequences, as well as the triumph, if momentary, of a civic decency embodied in the truly heroic figure of Giovanni Falcone, makes the traitor a must-see viewing experience. That's Il Traditore, aka The Traitor, now available to view on the library's Hoopla digital streaming service as well as on iTunes, YouTube, and Google Play. An historical biographical drama of a very different sort, though certainly no less enjoyable in a lighter, frothier, more traditional Hollywood sort of way, is Ford v. Ferrari. Ford versus Ferrari. Available to reserve from the library on DVD or to stream on iTunes. Ford v. Ferrari is definitely a crowd-pleaser, starring Matt Damon and Christian Bale as a hot-headed underdog team of American automotive engineers from the Ford Motor Company, who go head-to-head with the gods of Italian auto racing, Ferrari, in the 1966 24 Hours of Le Mans endurance race. Le Mans really is a tremendous test of endurance for driver and vehicle, as well as for its speed. I knew little about it before seeing Ford v. Ferrari, but in the 1960s, when this film is set, the winners covered more than 3,000 miles in a single day, longer than the distance by highway between New York City and Los Angeles, and at an average speed of more than 140 miles an hour. So perhaps what's most admirable about Ford v. Ferrari is that it does a superb job of developing the characters necessary to accomplish this sort of achievement. And you know, even if you're not a car enthusiast or a racing fan, and I mean, I'm certainly not, it's likely you'll appreciate what this movie has to offer as it does what all great Hollywood movies do in placing you in a world that, you know, very different from your own and crucially making you feel a part of it. And that certainly happened with me with Ford v. Ferrari. This is dynamic, even thrilling entertainment at times, if a little more formulaic than either of the artistically ambitious Spike Lee and Marco Bellocchio films mentioned earlier. The racing scenes are certainly well-constructed and often tension-filled, but I think it's the beautiful cinematography that really makes the experience of viewing Ford v. Ferrari a mostly sensual one. And one more pleasing on that level than either that of Five Bloods, or The Traitor. Ford v. Ferrari is a good-looking film, a very good-looking film. That's Ford vs. Ferrari, available to reserve as a DVD at the library or to stream on iTunes. You know, another enormously enjoyable, unapologetically old-fashioned Hollywood entertainment, this time in the classic Agatha Christie mold, is the recent whodunit Knives Out available to stream on Amazon Prime, iTunes, and also to reserve from the library as a DVD. This features James Bond actor Daniel Craig playing brilliantly against type as a dapper detective from the American South 
who joins forces with local police to investigate a group of eccentric suspects following the murder of a wealthy crime novelist, played by Christopher Plummer. Those suspects include an all-star cast of acting talent, including Tony Collette, Jamie Lee Curtis, Chris Evans, Don Johnson, Michael Shannon, and in something of a breakout role, relative newcomer Anna de Armas. But across the board, the performances here are knowingly broad, very theatrical, theatrical caricatures, which only serve to increase the fun, as well as the feeling that nothing is quite what it seems. Knives Out works so well, I think, because its creators, led by director Rian Johnson and screenwriter Jez Butterworth, seemingly know all the cliches and tropes of this particular kind of murder mystery inside out, and so wink at the audience to share in the fun of exploring them too. With its ingenious plotting, there are, I think, references to everything in the genre, from Murder on the Orient Express to Clue and even Sleuth all with a tone that is assuredly light and playful along the way. That's Knives Out, available to stream on Amazon Prime, iTunes, and also to reserve from the library as a DVD. And speaking of old school entertainment, this Monday, June 22nd, on TCM, Turner Classic Movies, are six in a row of the most notable movies from writer-director Billy Wilder one of the most brilliant and versatile filmmakers of the Hollywood Golden Age. Beginning at 7.30 a.m. is The Major and the Minor, from 1942, his directorial debut, though he had been writing scripts in Hollywood for years. This one with Ginger Rogers and Ray Milland in a comedy about sexual deception, a theme that Wilder would certainly return to again and again. Following that, at 9.15 a.m., is Double Indemnity, from 1944, co-written with Raymond Chandler. This film noir classic is one of Wilder's very greatest films, and it's about an insurance man played by Fred McMurray who helps a femme fatale, played with consummate cool by Barbara Stanwyck, to murder her husband, with Edward G. Robinson on hand to make sure that all does not go as planned. At 11.15 a.m. is The Seven-Year Itch from 1955, a sex-obsessed comedy about a married man fantasizing about his sexy neighbor, played with aplomb by Marilyn Monroe at her most delightfully best. Although a frustrated Wilder swore he would never work with her again because of her demands for star treatment and supposed poor work ethic. At 1.15 p.m. is Love in the Afternoon from 1957, a May-December romantic comedy with Audrey Hepburn and Gary Cooper. At 3.30 p.m., is Some Like It Hot from 1958 with Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis, and Marilyn Monroe again. A glorious, riotous treat no matter how many times you've seen it before and as close to perfection as a comedy can be. At 5.45 p.m. is The Apartment from 1960. Absolutely brilliant and still luminous 60 years later. This comedy drama about a lowly put-upon insurance clerk played by Jack Lemmon, who rises through the ranks by loaning out his apartment as a trysting place for his philandering superiors, just might be my favorite Billy Wilder movie, especially because of its rather jaundiced truths about sexual mores and office politics, as relevant today as ever they were. When one of those insurance executives, Fred McMurray again, callously casts off his elevator operator mistress, played by Shirley MacLaine, things take a surprising turn 
for everybody involved. You know, it was for the apartment that Billy Wilder became the first person to win the Academy Awards for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. That's a program of six Billy Wilder classics playing on Turner Classic Movies this Monday, June 22nd. TCM is an add-on cable TV channel available from both Bell and Videotron. All six films are also available as DVDs to reserve from the library. Okay, folks, that's all for now. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. That's me. I hope you've enjoyed this installment and will join me next Friday for more recommendations of what to watch and where to watch it. And also, please join me on Thursday next week for a special episode entitled Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Sinatra at the Movies. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at CoteStLuke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page, or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving me a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Well, that is today's episode of the Coat St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you're listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.